Hey everyone, we are live with our newest episode of The Conversation. I am your host, Alicia Krause, and with me is the leader of the multiverse, Andrew Clavin, who will be taking your questions live for an entire hour, starting now. So we loved doing this with Ben's last book, New York Times number one bestseller, by the way. Don't know if you'd heard or not, uh, that we wanted to do this with Andrew's new book, Another Kingdom, which I am so excited to read. You know a book is really good when you have to have a map of the fictional kingdom inside of it. Excellent map, and a really it, nice map. Like a beautiful yeah, map in order to understand job. it. And uh, so we're announcing that this is a very special episode because we are doing this live signing of Drew's new book, Another Kingdom. And for this episode, you actually don't have to be a subscriber. I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth because I'm so used to saying only <laughs> subscribers can ask the questions. <coughs> but this episode, you don't have to, guys. But when you purchase a copy of Drew's book, you can write in a question for him to answer live here on the air during this special episode of The Conversation. So head on over to premiercollectibles.com slash another kingdom to get your signed copy now. And don't worry if your question isn't answered because we have this massive stack of books. So you will still get a signed copy that you pre-order over at premiercollectibles.com slash another kingdom. And we can't wait to get started. Absolutely. But first, you have now what I had a couple weeks ago, deathly <clears throat> illness. I'm going to tell you something. And, and you have laryngitis. I'm going to tell you this. I'm, I'm joking, but I'm not joking. The devil hates this book. I, the devil hates another kingdom. I swear it. I, this book came to me. I told you once. This book came yeah. to me in a sudden burst, which has never happened before. It was like implanted, the entire story, at one moment. Just like yes. inspired. And I felt inspired. And ever since I started, like, I have been besieged. When I first finished this book, my house was suddenly filled with centipedes, ugly, horrible caterpillars all over the place. I thought something is really weird about that. Just suddenly, on the day I finished it, right? Yeah. Knowles and I started to do the podcast. I didn't even want to do the podcast. I felt compelled to do it. Like, mm -hmm. it, when I was praying, I had, like, do this podcast. When Knowles and I started... Every day, something went wrong technically. Yeah. Every, and we started joking about it. We started just saying, the devil hates another kingdom. The devil is trying to stop us. No matter what happened, every time a, a, there would be a, a landmark moment for mm -hmm. this book, this story, something would go wrong. So here the book finally comes out. You've been so kind to bring me on, to let me do this and all this. I've lost my voice. My plane got canceled. I woke up last night with horrible cramps in my leg. And I was, but by the time I was finished, I was like Denzel Washington and fences screaming out the window at death, you know? <laughs> so listen, all, I'm just saying, folks, if you don't want the devil to take over the universe, you have to buy a copy of this book. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying you'll go to hell if you don't, but I, you know, just telling you, the devil well, hates this book. We can get some oil in here, <laughs> lay hands on you. Absolutely, heal me, heal Rebuke me. things, yes. I can call my pastor up. We have some questions, and this is gonna be really fun, so you know how this works, right? You're gonna answer the question, okay. like this question is from Connor, and as you're answering Connor's question, you're gonna be signing Connor's book. Got it. Isn't that great? Perfect. And yes. people can head over to premiercollectibles.com slash another kingdom if they want, you know, to see their book signed right now. So Connor says, what school has been your favorite <laughs> YAF campus lecture in the past year and a half? Hint, hint, it was at GCU. 
Well, <laughs> uh, let's say GCU. No pressure. GCU By the way, I think among... Connor might be like the leader of why up at GCU. <laughs> if he's G the same Connor I'm thinking of, GCU I don't know. was among my my favorite colleges uh, with all the rest of them. I, and I have to, I have to tell you, the receptions I have gotten at colleges have been so great. I mean, it is so wonderful to have to actually get to talk to the people mm -hmm. who listen and who read the books and all that stuff. It just means a, a tremendous amount to me because you're talking to into a microphone, you do not see people. Yeah. And then when they come up and tell you they like your work, it's great. So you enjoy the part of getting mm. to see your audience in person? I, I actually like getting the questions more than I like giving speeches. Really? Yeah, I like to hear what there's, what's on their minds. You, you know, know, that's Ben's usually Ben's uh, favorite part, although I think Ben's Q&As are much more competitive Well, than then he yours. rips them up to pieces, I <laughs> know. Destroy. <laughs> destroy. Destroy. So yeah. I don't want to be uh, ageist yes. here. But you are an older gentleman. Yes. You're, uh, I would say, the patriarch of I'm the like, Daily Wire. I am Gandalf level old at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the white or the... <laughs> yeah. And uh, so do you feel kind of invigorated or hopeful for the future? Or yes. the kids are going to be all right when a you go speak to YF Absolutely, and one on of the campuses? reasons I don't destroy people uh -huh. is because when I look at them, they're very young to me, and I just want to help. I just want them to be happy, you know? And so, yes, when I meet, the, especially the YAF people, the YAF people, they are so on point, they're so smart, they're brave to do what they do, yeah. and it really does make you feel like all is not yet lost. All know? right, so, you know... Drew does have bias towards GCU, apparently. <laughs> Constantine wants to know, what are your thoughts on the brothers Karamazov? Am it, I saying that right? Yeah, the Karamazov. Uh, Kar Kar yes. Okay. It is my second favorite Dostoevsky book. Uh, you know, obviously, Crime and Punishment changed my life by taking me out of the realm of the relativists and convincing me there was such a thing as right and wrong, a moral yeah. universe. I didn't understand the brothers Karamazov when I first read it. Mm. I've now read it three times. By the third time, I sort of caught on. Got it. I got it. Yes, and it's a beautiful book. And he, Dostoevsky is a prophet. He saw communism coming. He saw Nietzsche coming before Nietzsche mm. even wrote a word. Uh, his books are so beautiful and so full with full of faith, and they always make me laugh because they're the greatest Christian novels ever written. But they're so full of life, you would never find them in a Christian bookstore because they're too real. You know? um. By the way, Constantine was writing us for, from Sydney. So he bought that book, and that book is going to go to Sydney. God love him. So that's really cool. Yeah. I would leave that cap off of that pen. I guess so. It I'd, I'm just saying, we got a few, <laughs> we got a lot of these to sign. <coughs> right. um, Dominique wants to know Hey, Drew, thanks for being a voice of reason in a time where everything seems so chaotic. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what are some of your favorite video games to play to take you out of this crazy reality that we live in? Well, I love, I love. Uh, video games. I love simple video games, mm -hmm. uh, but I love the games that have a puzzle in them. So games like Braid, um, Inside, uh, Limbo. I really loved all of those. I'm just finishing um, the new, um, oh, the one about the demon. I've lost it. Uh, the, the, uh, I'm also playing on the Switch. I'm playing the new Super Mario, okay. Super Mario U. I'm lo kind of looking that, forward. Out of to all of the things that you just mentioned, that's the only one I know because <laughs> I'm not a gamer. I'm sorry. I'm looking forward to the Devil May Cry five or eight or whatever yeah. it is. I always like those games. They're really campy and silly. Uh, and uh, Diablo, that was what I was thinking. Okay. I just finished Diablo three, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and video games do take you out of things because mm. you're so immersive. The minute you put that thing in your hand, you're in the picture, and it's uh, it's just great. I love what it. do you think about the kind of? Uh, I hear a lot of talk of the future of gaming when it comes to AR and VR incorporation. Yeah, I think the new VR is so exciting that it actually maybe is one. I'm, I'm not big on gimmicks. Mm -hmm. Like I'd never like movies that were 3D and all that stuff. Yeah. But the new VR is so good. Uh, it could really be an exciting new way to experience uh, art. Okay. All right. Drew wants to know, hey, Drew yeah, wants yeah. to know from <laughs> Drew, what has been your favorite book that you've written to date? You know, it's funny. 
books are like kids. You don't really have favorites. You know, each one of them. It's uh, special for their own reason. Yeah, each one of them is special for its own reason. It really is true. Um, but there are books that are special in your life. So mm-hmm. uh, Werewolf Cop is is a book that didn't do all that well commercially, and I think it's one of the best books I ever wrote. And to be honest with you, I think it's one of the best pop works of popular fiction of the last couple decades. And so it it has this, I kind of have a care for it, like the, the child with a limp or something like that, you know? Um, and of course, uh, an, a, um, Another Kingdom has been such a great experience. Writing Another Kingdom has mm-hmm. been great. Doing it with Knowles has been terrific. Uh, so it's always always the latest book is always a special favorite because you, you just finished it. It's so that's, new and fresh. Right, right. But and there, doesn't talk back yet. And there's there's another one that was like uh, Werewolf Cop, The Uncanny, which is kind of a prequel uh, to Werewolf Cop that changed my life, you know, and it also didn't do all that well. But when I was finished writing it, my mind was free and it really, uh, it did something to me. I mm-hmm. write about it in my memoir, uh, The Great Good Thing, uh, that it just really changed everything for me. And so those are books that are kind of special because they didn't quite, the world didn't love them, but I love them. Uh, and so they do have a special place. This book is, this may be the last novels I ever write. Really? I'm not sure, but I, it feels that way. There's something that is completing me in writing, that is huh. completing the mission I started out with, and they are a statement of a place that I've come to that I've never been before in my life, a place of real serenity and joy, and it's coming out through this book. Uh, I'm almost finished with the third one, the last one, mm-hmm. and I, I think I may move on to pure nonfiction after this. So really? We'll see. Yeah. So what would you write? After this, well, because you've write, already written a memoir. Yeah, I would write a kind of a kind of philosophical sequel. I'd like to write about the books that have affected me. Hmm. You know, so I'm, I think I might do that next. That'd be great if it could be like a primer. Yeah. For the books that you would recommend that yep. people should read. All right, and we should note you said that you've loved working on this with Michael. He means the podcast. Yes, we uh, all know that Michael does not write books. Of course. Just, well, he does, but they have no words. Just wanted in to yeah. clarify so we weren't <laughs> spreading fake news. <laughs> Michaela wants to know why do academics hate conservatism and capitalism so much? As a college student, I'm amazed at how they want to uproot all of the conservative values, even here in my red state. You know, it, I, I hate to say, I, I hate to take my opponents and give them psychological reasons for what they think, because mm-hmm. I do like to listen to their reasons. <clears throat> but it is interesting that in any um, study that has to work, engineering, agriculture, science, STEM, you find a lot of conservatives. Mm-hmm. But in the uh, in the areas that don't have to work, the liberal arts, uh, history and, ma- and uh, literature and things like that, that's where you find the socialists and the woke people and the people who have these theories that just don't work. One of the things about capitalism and about freedom, about liberty itself, is that it elevates the common man. It means that the guy with a 175 IQ and the guy who's not got 175 IQ are really working in an open field where either one of them can wind up the CEO of a company or can create something or do something, some sport or something, that makes him a millionaire or a billionaire and can succeed. And that takes away the value of the guy with the high IQ who mm. thinks he's so special, who thinks he's uh, elevated above everybody else and should be respected more than everybody else. And I think the most beautiful thing in a free country is the intellectual who respects the common man, who says, yes, I have my field, which is the intellectual field, but he has his field and he can make it and become wealthy in that field too. Just too few people uh, feel that way. Too many people feel that the elites should be in charge, that the guy out in the Midwest in his checkered shirt is, is less than he is and shouldn't have... Why does he have Fly a vote? Fly over country. You know, Dick yeah. Cabot, the, the elitist uh, talk show host, once said to me on a radio show, what is this thing, free speech? Why should <laughs> stupid people get to speak? And I think that there's a lot of people who secure their own position in their minds 
by saying that other people are less than, than they are. And I think that's why they hate capitalism, and I think that's why they hate liberty. All right, good answer. Jonathan asks, how often do you reread books? Personally, I usually treat books with singular <coughs> stories as single use item, like as single use items, while treating books with numerous subjects as unlimited use items. You know, I've reached the point where a lot of the books I read in youth come back to me and I want to reread them again hmm. from a new perspective. The books that shaped me and formed me. I just reread uh, Don Quixote, which I had read since high school, and suddenly I thought, oh, now I see why this is such a great book. Uh, I read books when they come, I reread books when they come back to me hmm. and they kind of ask to be reread. Uh, they sort of knock on the door and say, wait, you know, I have something new to say to you. Uh, and frequently I go back to them, especially now, and find that, yes, they are speaking to me in a whole new way, a whole new voice, and that they they connect to the time I read them before. Um, I, I love to read new books, mm -hmm. but I have read at this point, as Knowles likes the jokes, I've read all the books. Uh, I have read a lot of the classics and a lot of the canon of, uh, of literature, and I go back to them to see how they speak to me in new ways. So it, it's really not about the nature of the book, whether it has a single story or many different stories. It's about how deep it goes and whether it can speak to me again. It's very unlikely I'll go back and read some thriller uh, that just had a sort of, you know, mm -hmm. was a thrill of the moment. But like I said, I've read the Brother Car Brothers Karamazov three times. I've read Crime and Punishment three times. Uh, and Shakespeare I go back to all the time. Mm. If there's uh, depths there that can be sounded again, a new voice that can speak to me through time, I'll go back and read it. So you said that you will reread books that kind of call to you. Yes. Is it when you're walking through your library? Is it a dinner conversation it, with friends? It's what just, kind of spurs it, it, you to go, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna go back and give it, that another look? Sometimes it's a conversation, mm -hmm. but oftentimes it just comes back into my head with this kind of persistence, mm -hmm. you know, sort of set, saying to me, you know, I've got something new to say, come back. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I go back to it, and it always does. It always has something new. That's really interesting. Next question comes from Kyle, who says, who do you think is the front runner in the Democratic presidential primary at this point? Do you think any of the candidates as they stand right now has a legitimate chance of defeating President Trump in the upcoming election? Well, to answer the second question, first, uh, I never say nobody can do anything. I mean, the last time I said that was about Donald Trump. <laughs> I said I'll never win a primary. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, so I never count anybody out. But I do think that right now I, could, I can picture uh, Bernie Sanders winning. I can picture hmm. him doing what Trump did, which is dividing everybody else and winning with 30 percent of the, of the vote. Um, I can, I, the one I fear most is Kamala Harris because she's sinister and she's smart. Mm -hmm. And she's, she'll do anything, as we know from her past, she'll do anything to get elected. Yep. Um, I think right this minute, if I had to place money on an election, which in, this, in these days I would never do, right this minute I think Trump's going to win. I think that he has uh, been victorious against this Russian collusion nonsense. He, the economy's going well. People are beginning to kind of get used to him. Mm. He's a, you know, it's funny, he's a character and he's got a lot of flaws, but there's nothing secret about him. <clears throat> when you compare him to like Barack Obama pretending to be this godlike statesman when really he was just a Chicago city pal, mm -hmm. uh, you compare him to Hillary Clinton with all her you know, first woman president rhetoric who was really inside such a desiccated ruin of corruption. Trump is exactly what you see. We know him, we see him, he has his flaws, they're big flaws, he has big uh, virtues as well. Mm -hmm. There's nothing secret about him and I think people might be getting used to that and starting to like it. I notice his poll numbers creeping up and I think, uh, I think he may have turned a corner. I hope so because I think he's done a good job. 
All right, I'm kind of embarrassed that I don't know what this next question means. You know, I don't know what it means either. Oh, no. <laughs> Go ahead. But John wants to know, as you sign his book, what's your favorite sandbox video game? Hey, guys, do you know what a sandbox video game is? Um, should I Anybody? Google it real quick? What's that? It's an open world. Oh, oh. you know, I, I, that's that's what I thought about. You know, I'm not a big fan of open world games because... Can I, you explain that to me? Sorry. You, you know, in an open world, you wander around. You can go all kinds of different places. Most games have a kind of track that you're yeah, on. You have to follow, have, And yeah. I kind of like that because it's like being told a story in the open world. You, you know, it gets kind of tiring to me just riding around. I started... Uh, I've started a bunch of them, and almost, I don't think I've finished any of them. Hmm. Uh, so there was one Spider-Man game that had an open world that mm -hmm. I kind of enjoyed. You stop off, but I don't really like them. I like a game with a story in it, and a story demands that you're on a track because the track is what is the narrator. The track mm -hmm. is telling you uh, the story. That's the best I can do because I can't remember the last open uh, game. Um, yeah, I, Ico had a sequel called Shadow of the Colossus that was kind of an open world game that I liked a lot. So okay. that's, just, that's the best I can do. All right, Arun is asking, Hi Andrew, what can the success of Game of Thrones teach conservatives about how to write good fiction? Tell the truth. I mean, this is the thing about it. Everybody complains about the naked ladies in it, and, and it is exploitative. You know, there's no question. HBO mm -hmm. does this thing. The first three seasons, they'll just they'll be having a conversation. Just two girls will be banging each other in the background, so they know you'll keep your subscription up and you'll stick around. And and there's no question, no question that Game of Thrones did that. But with all that said. It, it told a great story. It, it tells a great story in which real things happen. Mm -hmm. People cheat. People lie. People curse. People kill. People make love. They have sex. It, with it, their brothers or their cousins? With, their, or, with everybody. I've with, never watched an episode. With anybody. I'm with just anybody. saying what I've heard on Twitter. But, but, you know, I keep getting this email. I get it again and again. You're a Christian. Your story should be happy. They should be, there should be no cursing. There should be no sex. And I think, yeah, there should be no life. God is God of the real world. And, and you find God by studying the real world. I mm. found God by studying the real world, not by studying my fantasy life, by studying the real world. So any, any honest work can lead you to God, even if it's by an atheist, which has happened to me many times, mm. where I've read an atheistic book and thinks, yes, that's more realistic than a religious book, and I see God there because it's more realistic. So I think what we have to do is we have to stop being so... I, I always say it like this. <clears throat> Conservative fiction does not look like conservative life. Mm -hmm. I live a conservative life. I've been long time married, faithfully married. I work hard, I'm, I'm diligent, I try to be honest. Those are not the characters I write about. They don't make good stories. Mm -hmm. I don't want my life to be a good story. If my life is interesting, I'm in trouble. I want my characters to be interesting and I want to, them to plumb the depths of human sin and degradation and reality so that you can see what life really is. Alrighty, I mean, and there's a lot of that in the actual Bible. I mean, the Bible is the. I'm, I'm maybe some people me? should go back yeah. and read about David. It's like days of our lives over there. All righty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Denzel says, "Dear Lord Commander Clavin, <laughs> protector of the seven multiverses, <laughs> what do you think is the best way <laughs> to approach the Book of Revelation?" What a great question. Uh, it's great. You know, there are so many ways to to read it. Some people read it uh, as as prophecy that is. Uh, relevant now, mm -hmm. what is going to happen next, how will the end times come. Some people read it as a prophecy of what already happened in 70 AD when uh, the Jews' country was wiped off the face of the earth by the Romans. They read it as a, uh, as a prophecy that's already taken place. Recently, however, I read a book uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago that said it was really a description of the Mass. Hmm. Uh, it was really a description of the Catholic Mass um, in which 
heaven comes down to earth. And so that when you are in the Mass, you are living through the prophecies of the Book of Revelation. And for those who don't know, the Catholic Mass is a very stately liturgy that takes mm -hmm. you through uh, confession to forgiveness, uh, to a remembrance of, of the Last Supper and Jesus. And at the same time, you're supposed to be worshiping with the angels and archangels who are essentially joining you in communing with the body and blood of Christ. And this book put forward the idea that the Book of Revelation is a, a description of that amazing experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I can't say whether that's true or not, but I think it's a really interesting way to read the book. Interesting. I'm yeah. sure Knowles would really like that <laughs> definition of it. David wants to know, who is your favorite president? Oh, man. Um, well, It's such a short uh, question, but it's really packed. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I, you know, I will give you three answers to that. Um, you got to love uh, George Washington. You gotta love George Washington because no matter how many times they try to revise him, no matter how many times they try to say, oh, he wasn't as great as people say he was. He was. Mm -hmm. He was a genuinely virtuous man who genuinely, through his virtue, through his love of freedom, uh, brought the country into being by surrendering his sword and his soldierhood and his command and his commission to the civilian authorities. So you gotta love uh, President George. Mm -hmm. I love Abraham Lincoln not just because uh, of his stately commitment to liberty and freedom in the Union, um, some of which I have questions about, but I love him because he was the greatest writer who was mm. ever president. I mean, he is certainly the greatest master of prose to ever hold the highest, uh, the highest um, office in the land. Mm. And then I really, do, uh, I really do love Reagan. I mean, Reagan changed me. Mm. He was in my time. Uh, he was the guy who revealed to me that the left, that the right was not evil. You know, because he came around and they did the same thing they did to Trump, same thing they did to George W. Bush, same thing they do to virtually every Republican president. Evil, racist, mean, warmongered, kill us. If he, if he went, if he said red, then the answer was green. If he said black, the answer was white. Racist, racist, racist. And while black people rose uh, on, in his administration uh, more than any other group, except I think single women mm -hmm. uh, who did better in his administration. <clears throat> and when the wall fell down, when the Berlin Wall fell down, I swept up in the left, completely convinced that the left was right. When the wall fell down, I remember thinking, you know, that old buzzard was right about everything. Hmm. And I, that's when I stopped and thought, well, wait a minute. You know, how is that possible? How, how could that possibly be true if he was an evil, stupid, warmongering, simplistic How could he actor? be right about anything? How could he be right about anything? Yeah. And, and so right. You know, people don't remember this because everybody lies about it now. Nobody knew the Soviet Union could fall. They all say, oh, well, anybody... Nobody, only Reagan, he only knew it, only he, Thatcher and the Pope, knew that the Soviet Union was weak and could be undermined and could be taken out. And, um, and so it was, it was miraculous when that evil slave empire died and it changed my mind. So I always have a special place in my heart uh, for the Ron. I love to hear that experience mm -hmm. from someone that was there. Yeah, that was know? amazing. Yeah. Uh, Dalton has a question. He says, hey, Drew. How would you go about writing a superhero story? Have, well, well, I mean, if this is your last fictional trilogy, what are we going to do? Well, you know, this the question to me is always the same. I always get a story, with the exception of Another Kingdom, which came to me whole. Mm -hmm. Most of my stories come to me as a kind of what-if question. They come to me like, um, what if this happened? What if that happened? And then the, the, the thing that makes them a story that I want to write mm -hmm. is when the perfect character comes to fit that story. So 
for instance, Don't Say a Word, uh, my kidnapping story, came when I was walking in to look on, in on my little baby daughter. Because, uh, you know, when they're little, you want to make sure they're still going up and down when mm -hmm. they sleep, right? And uh, I was going in, and as, as I was about to turn the corner into the nursery, I thought, what if she's gone, yeah. you know? And I thought that, well, that would be kind of weird, because I'm locked in, I'm in a New York apartment, and what if she was somehow gone? And who was the perfect person for that story? For me, it was a, a little wimpy intellectual guy who suddenly was opposed to a physical danger that he simply wasn't equipped to handle, but he loved his daughter so much that he was ready to die to handle that situation. And that made it a beautiful story, not just an ugly, suspenseful story, it made it a beautiful story. <clears throat> and so with a superhero, it's really hard mm. to find the story that's gonna make him matter, that's gonna matter to him. Uh, when Frodo goes off to, to destroy the ring, he's a little guy. He's a little guy against massive forces, and aren't we all, you know? But when Superman goes off, you've gotta somehow create uh, an, an oppositional, um, challenge that is going to raise him in mm -hmm. some way from what he is at the beginning to what he is at the end. So what I would say is I wouldn't write a superhero story. <clears throat> I would write a story that starts with a, a proposition, a what-if proposition that only a superhero uh, can elevate. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's how I would approach it. So would you say then that it might be more difficult to write a superhero story? <clears throat> it's the reason I don't like superhero stories is because really? very rarely do the stories really elevate the characters? The characters can't really die. Uh, they don't really have uh, sexual flaws. Mm -hmm. Like most of us are, per most of you know, anybody can be perfect until he meets a member of the opposite sex, right? I mean, we're all perfect when we're alone. You know, it's only when you're suddenly dealing with somebody that you want, but who frustrates you, but is you know, dangerous into, to your consciousness. And, and that never happens in superhero stories. So it's only in stories like Logan, uh, where mm -hmm. the guy is really flawed and he's put in a situation, I don't want to uh, have any spoilers, but he's put in a situation that really challenges his identity. That's the only time a superhero story means anything to me, which is why I tend to like origin stories and superhero stories mm -hmm. more than the sequel uh, and why they start to lose me after a while. Um, because it is hard. When a guy is so powerful, when he's Superman, what could possibly elevate him? Mm -hmm. from where he is, what could possibly challenge him in his deepest level. Uh, sometimes they pull it off, but oftentimes they don't. I would say the Thor-Loki connection. The Thor, right? of course. <laughs> I mean, that's really all I know because I'm the person that just goes and watches the superhero movies. I really want to uh. see Shazam. I've heard good things. Yes, me too. I've heard it sounds really fun. All right, Arun says, Andrew, how do I respond to my liberal friend who recently told me, quote, you would understand the struggle if you are a person of color. <laughs> when we talked about politics. No, I'm an Indian immigrant. <laughs> well, you know, the other day... Does that not qualify as a person of color? Well, the other day I was at the University of Texas um, in, um, in Arlington, and somebody got up and said, raise your hand if you're a person of color. And all the black and brown people raised their hands. And I said, does that mean the rest of you are persons of no color? You know, I mean, we're all people of color. You know, I, my color happens to be olive or white or whatever. You know, and so, and so I think it's a bogus thing. Mm -hmm. How often... How often is what the left says a synonym for shut up? Mm. You can't talk because you're white. You can't talk because you're a male. You can't talk because you're a white female. Mm -hmm. And then when a black person like Candace Owens stands up and says, I disagree, they just start cursing at her. They just start, you know, screaming obscenities at her uh, because they've lost their argument, which is shut up. So my response to that is always the same. Either it's right to judge people by the color of their skin, or it's not. Mm. I say it's not. I say we're made in God's image. P 
period. That's the end. To me, there is no appeal from that. Before made in God's image, there's no going on. There's no next sentence to that. There's no but after that. If we are all made in God's image, and if it's wrong to uh, categorize people according to the color of their skin, then it's certainly wrong that a white person can't address the pain of a black person or vice versa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're all in existential pain, every, every one of us. None of us is what we want to be. All of us have sinned. You know, all, none of us is righteous, no, not one. And so I think it, so often, so often, you can look in another person's eyes and you know the failure they feel, the insecurity they feel, mm. uh, the pain they feel, and that doesn't have anything to do with color, and I think it's just a bogus way of shutting people up. All righty. Elias mm. says, Dear Clavin, usually I am a very caring and involved person, and mm. I am always am when it concerns mm. others, but lately I've been hit with such waves of apathy concerning my own well-being, the outcome of my grades, job searching, and even mm. my own desire to be faithful to Christ. I know what's right and wrong in life, but how do I overcome sweeping apathy in my life? Thanks for all you do. Um, listen, your problem is not apathy. Your problem is something else that you're not facing that's causing the apathy. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, apathy is not a thing. You know, it's a symptom. It, uh, and so it's like depression. It probably is depression. So something is bothering you that, that you haven't faced. Um, and, and I can't tell you what it is. You probably already know. You're probably already telling yourself it's not that uh, as I'm speaking, uh, but it's that. That's what it is. It's something mm. that, is, uh, that is bugging you that you don't want to face because you're angry about it, uh, because it threatens you, because it maybe undermines your relationship with somebody that you want to keep intact. Uh, but that apathy is a symptom and you need to confront the underlying cause. Uh, it's, it's kind of like saying, how can I overcome my depression? You can't, you gotta un overcome the thing that's causing the depression, mm -hmm. the thing that's depressing you. When, when you suddenly lose interest, um, in the work you do, and that's happened to me. I mean, you know, it, it happens to everybody around 45 or so. You have this moment when you think, what was I doing again? You know, I can't remember. You, you have to pause, step back, say, okay, you know, I don't care about these things, why not? What, what's happening, what's bothering me? What's eating at me? So I would just say, look inside yourself, get help if you need it, get help to look inside yourself and find out what that thing is that's caught up with you. You've suppressed it up till now, but now it's caught up with you and it's causing you to be depressed, basically. All right, good answer. But wouldn't even have thought of that, but you know, he's wise. For I've, been, I've been around for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Joel's question is Hello, Mr. Clavin. I'm 26, and not so recently, I ended a two year relationship with my first girlfriend. What was about 16? I'm sorry, that was about 16 months ago, and I'm still having a lot of difficulty letting go. She was a lovely person in most ways, but we had different values. Her ideology was atheist and liberal bordering on leftist. But that being said, we could still have cordial discussions about it and her behavior was more consistent with conservative values. If not for the fact that I want my children to be Jewish, I probably could have seen myself marrying her. I've always had difficulty moving on from things, but this in particular is having a very negative effect on my life. I'm growing more and more resentful towards my ex and frequently get bouts of anger and depression. I don't drink because I know I have an addictive personality and I'm seeing a psychiatrist and taking a low dose of antidepressants, but it seems to be treating the symptoms rather than the issue. Kind of piggybacks on this last <clears throat> yeah, question. Yeah. Do you have any advice on how to move on? Sincerely, stuck in the past. Yeah, you know, it's gonna take discipline. And this is the thing. You know, sometimes I, I, when I hear questions like this, I always feel that the second part of the question has been left off. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can I move on without doing anything? 
How can I move on psychologically? Well, we without all want the easy way out. Right, we all do. You know, how can I move on psychologically without moving on physically, you know? And I think the thing is, you've got to now focus on other things. And even if they're made up things, mm. you got to do it. Um, more important than any antidepressants you're taking, get some exercise, go out and work out, do it every day, force yourself to do it. <laughs> do it a little more each day. Uh, take up thing, Take up things that that puts you in contact with other people. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, when I suffered in, in college, I suffered a terrible, terrible bout of depression. I don't like to join things. I don't like to go out and do activities. I joined things. I went out and I, I took up activities um, because that, those are the ways you get out of that depression. You get free. I don't want to tell anybody to go off his meds because I'm not a doctor and mm -hmm. nobody should listen to me about that. But I feel that they're prescribed too often when there are other causes uh, available. Like, in other words, people come and say, like, oh, my girlfriend left me or I broke up with my girlfriend, I'm depressed, and they prescribe an antidepressant. And you say, well, why? You're not depressed because of some chemical thing. You're depressed because you broke up with your girlfriend. You can't move on. So you move on by moving on. You move on by getting the discipline, saying, every day I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to do this thing. And these, and that's going to get me exercise and cheer me up. That's going to get me out with people and, and I'm going to meet new people and have new interests. Uh, it's going to take me out of myself. I'm going to go to church and church has volunteer work. I'm going to do that volunteer work. Do those things. You've got to have the discipline and the strength to break through. And I know it's kind of a catch-22 because the depression saps you of your strength. You got to fight it, fight back. That's one of the reasons. Again, don't go off your meds on my say so, but that's one of the reasons I I'm, I worry about those meds because I think like, do it yourself. You know, beat it, and then you'll know it's you're bigger than it is. You know, mm. and that's what I ultimately did. I exercised. I joined things. I got better, and ultimately I needed help for for my own overarching problems, but at least I beat that period of depression and went on into a new part of life. You know? All right. <clears throat> Jose wants to know the best book to learn the differences between fascism, socialism, and communism. Well, <laughs> that's kind of an interesting, I mean, there's all kinds of books, you know, that, that almost sounds like you want a handbook of some kind, <laughs> um, you know, but does it even exist? Yes. I don't even know, you know, like I'm sure any, any book of political philosophy that's written uh, by a conservative or at least a patriot will will help you with that. But um, but the book that I really think you should look at is Witness. Um, it is it is just a. Um, have you read Witness? Mm -mm. Oh, you got to read. It's a life changing book about a guy uh, who was a uh, became a, a communist spy okay. and then gave it up and turned over state's evidence and brought out a an even higher communist spy and. Um, it's one of the turning points in communism in America, hmm. and it really describes what's wrong with the philosophy, why it draws people in. Uh, it's a life-changing book. It's called Witness, and um, and it's just absolutely terrific. Whitaker Chambers. I, for a minute, I couldn't remember okay. the name of the guy. Uh, Whitaker Chambers. Uh, he exposed Alger Hiss, and just like oh, today, wow. just like today, the mainstream media and the elites loved Hiss. He was an elite. He was in the State Department. They loved him, and they defended him, and they never forgave Whitaker Chambers or the lawyer who supported him, Richard Nixon, they never forgave him for bringing the man down because Hiss was guilty, 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 and they said he wasn't. And, and Whitaker Chambers, this kind of sloppy guy, uh, brought him down. And Chambers' book is, is just a landmark hmm. uh, in American history and American literature, and it will help you see a lot about communism. 
uh, for Nazism, of course, you want to read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, mm -hmm. but still, uh, Witness is just a great book. All right, good to know. <laughs> Dwight wants to know, how does he best interact with Christian brothers and sisters who are embracing the white guilt and other SJW principles within their churches and private lives? It seems like they embrace their feelings more than their truth. Well, what I would say is your, your assignment is not to convert them to your way of thinking. That's not what you're there to do. If you look at yourself as some instrument of, of change, you can't really reach them. <clears throat> your, your job is to share with them in the body of Christ. Uh, that's, your, that's your only job. And if you do that, and if you speak the truth as you see it, right? If you speak the truth as you see it, and you live the truth as you see it, and you're not afraid, but you're polite, and you're kind, and you're loving, and you love them in the body of Christ, that's the best you're going to do. Uh, you may not change their minds, but you might. And it's one thing that really is helpful to people <clears throat> is everything, the one thing the left knows, and I was on the left, and I know this, they don't always know what they know, what they think they know, but they all know that we're evil. <laughs> and if they can see that you're not evil, that you are their brother in Christ or sister in Christ. It starts to crack the dam a little it bit. It cracks the dam a little bit. That's what I was talking about with Reagan. Once I thought like, huh, the people who supported them may be wrong, but they're not evil. So what are they saying? Why did my father think they were Nazis when they're obviously not? You know, let me take another look at that. And if you can represent that to people in your church, if you can represent that to people in your religion, that to me is probably the most important thing you can mm. do. And so don't think of yourself as I got to change their mind because you're not going to change a lot of their minds, but just represent and, and make sure you're honest about what you think and make sure you're polite and loving in the way you descri describe it. And they'll start to think, you know, I don't agree with him, but he's not as bad a guy as I thought he was. My husband and I love to use the word uh, fellowship and that sometimes you know, the fellowship and the yeah. relationship, Yeah, you can plant seeds and things can happen and change. I agree. So. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm not as old and wise as you are, but <laughs> so, you'll I never think be I'm as old. older than some of our viewers. You'll today. never be as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, folks, just remember that this is a very special episode of The Conversation because I'm not going to yell at you that only Daily Wire subscribers <laughs> get to ask the questions. Although you should be a Daily Wire <laughs> subscriber because then you get to ask the questions tonight on our very special special Mueller Report edition of Backstage. I'm gonna, I'm just, by that like time, I'm just going to be holding up signs. We're, you're just going like, to write I, I out disagree, the answers. I disagree, Ben. I mean, <laughs> we're running straight from this special episode of The Conversation right on over yes. to that episode of Backstage. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. But all you have to do, you get Drew's book. He will sign it for you and answer your questions if you buy a book that you want signed over at premiercollectibles.com slash another kingdom. So hurry, go get your copy over there. we got a few minutes left for questions to come in. But don't worry, even if your question doesn't get asked by moi to Drew, he's still gonna sign this whole stack of books and all the other orders that come in for these signed books. I will. So you'll be able to rest your throat tomorrow, <laughs> but your hands are gonna be tired. <laughs> just right, just letting you know. Fair Hope enough. you don't get arthritis. <laughs> all right, Stephen says, in your opinion, what is the meaning and significance of Jesus's cry, why have you forsaken me at the crucifixion? Oh. Boy, Good question. Easter weekend question. It is a great Easter weekend <clears throat> question. Um, here's my take on it, okay? I've heard people say, you know, it's part of us, it's one of the Psalms, and it ends on a note of hope. And I've heard people say that that was what Jesus intended. I don't actually believe that. <laughs> uh, I believe you have to understand that God doesn't live in time, He lives outside of time. So everything that has happened or will happen is all one to Him, right? But there's only one thing that an all knowing God can't know. And that is what it's like to not know. And when I read the Gospels, what I read is God learning what it means to be 
a poor human being who doesn't know that we can live forever, who mm. doesn't know that the spiritual world is more important than the physical world, who worries. Remember, Jesus is always saying, don't worry, don't worry. And you think like, don't worry. You know, what do you mean don't worry? Have you seen what's going on here? You know, of course you worry. And in that moment, I, I think there, there is a moment in the Gospels when Jesus understands he's going to have to die in order to know us, in order to redeem us, in order to understand us. And that's the moment when God understands death. And I think that on, that, on the cross, Jesus understands the full terror and tragedy mm. of being a human being. And in doing that, he brings us to God and says, look, this is who they are. This is what they see. And, and of course, there's no point when God doesn't know that because he's all time, he's above time. But still, that is the moment in time when, when he understands that he's made creatures who die. And when you die, it's very hard to have faith. You know, Jesus says these things that don't make sense. When, when Peter starts to sink beneath the waves, he says, oh, ye of little faith. And you think, really? Like, how much faith do you have to have to walk on water? He took a step on water. That's more than <laughs> I've ever done, you know. And it takes, I think it takes time uh, for God to understand the full tragedy and horror of being a human being and to forgive us, to forgive us in the knowledge of that. And I think it's a, a beautiful and tragic moment. And I don't like to undercut it by saying there's hope uh, because I think in that moment there is no hope. Hmm. It's only at Easter that the hope comes. And we should remember in our moments of having no hope that Easter comes. It really does. But it's, it, it's a terrible, uh, I know what it feels like to despair. And, and in that despair, that's what you have to remember. Mm. That despair is really despair. It really is as dark as it seems. It really is as deep as it seems. And it's not beyond God. God has Easter in his pocket and he's coming for you. And I think that that's what it means. Wow. I've never heard that before, but I like it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Emmett says that his question is, what is wisdom? How is it different from knowledge? And how can a young person like me acquire wisdom earlier? I've heard it's just a matter of experience, but I know plenty of old people <laughs> who are entirely without wisdom, so there must be more to it. Yes, of course. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, there's no fool like an old fool. That's why, because <laughs> you've had the time to learn, but you haven't. Um, you know, the best way, I think, to acquire wisdom faster mm -hmm. um, is the arts is art because you know how on towels they have those little nubs and the nubs give the towel more space uh this is why they have those nubs because mm -hmm. it soaks up more water has more area art is like that it gives you little nubs of experience that you couldn't have uh you don't have time to have on your own it takes what a week say to read a book and you've lived an entire life that you that you wouldn't be able to live in a lifetime mm -hmm. uh, so i think that's a wonderful way but the most important thing is to, i mean it's in the bible Judge not, lest you be judged. Mm. When you look at people, try to see not what's wrong with them and not why they're, you're better than they are and not why they're lesser than you are and you're, you know, you're cooler or whatever. Uh, you try to see how they're with you in their pain and their suffering uh, and in their um, confusion and in all the things that we experience in life. When you don't go right to the judgment place, um, you acquire a little bit of that person's hmm. spirit for your own. And it's, it really does start to make you wiser. The people I know who are old and are not wise, one of the things I notice about them is they've never changed their opinions ever. They're like a little train on a circular track. Sometimes they'll say something different, but they always come back to the same station again and again and again. And they know what they know and they never change. You see that with Barack Obama. I used hmm. to watch it, look at him and think that's one of the least wise people I've ever seen. Because one of the things, and look, I know every, I've lived so long, I know everything. I make mistakes, and when I make mistakes, you have two choices. You either say, ah, I made a mistake, what do I know now that I didn't know then? Or you say, no, no, that wasn't a mistake. I was right, everybody else was wrong. 
And that's what a lot of people do. And that's how you cease to acquire wisdom. That's how you keep from acquiring wisdom. So an open mind, uh, you know, so much of this is in the Gospels. I mean, so much of the Gospels that sounds like a command is really just good advice. Mm -hmm. You know, love your neighbor, love your enemy. When you love your enemy, suddenly you realize, ah, you know, I see kind of where he's coming from. That makes you wise. And so, um, you know, uh, judge not, love your enemy. Those are great ways to wisdom. But also, you know, like I said, the arts and coming to the arts and coming to the great works uh, gives you lives. You don't just don't have time to live. Mm. And, uh, and a lot of what I know uh, comes from reading Shakespeare, reading Aristotle, reading Homer, and then looking at life through their eyes. And it gives me like other other beings inside me that I can turn to for advice. You know? Interesting. Yeah. All right, guys, we're kind of in the final countdown. Oh, so you got to head over to premiercollectibles.com slash another kingdom. If you want one of these awesome books signed, and I mean, can we show people the inside? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, this cover is so great. And I love that it has book one because it is a tr trilogy. Yeah, what a great cover. This is where Drew is signing your special autographed books. Mm -hmm. How many books have you autographed in your lifetime? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I did. I once signed so many in a single day that I forgot how to write my name. And <laughs> I didn't realize this, but you actually dedicated it to the God King I and did. his better half. I did. He's much, he's much better. I mean, I mean he's incredibly better. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. be honest. <laughs> well, he's almost better two-thirds. And you call them to... friends from both kingdoms. <laughs> yeah. That's so sweet. Mm. Uh, you quote C.S. Lewis. I do. Which is beautiful. But I'm obsessed with this map. It's a great map. It's a really great map. Yeah. It's so cool. And it, it explains the other kingdom. It's a, it's a, it's a great thing because it's not just a book. It's a beautiful book. It's a nice yes. thing to have on your shelf. Yeah. Yes. And uh, being spiritually attacked, by the way. And and we're under <laughs> spiritual attack. Save us, please, please. <laughs> Submit beat the your dollars. Buy, buy my book and beat the devil. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Brandon says, dear Supreme Lord Clavin, do you believe that there was a specific point in time when the leftists in Hollywood made a conscious decision to no longer make art for the purpose of entertainment and instead to push pure leftism on America? If so, what film, TV show, or other pieces of art do you think demonstrates that? No, I, I, it wasn't a specific moment in time. It was a progression from the studio system when the businessmen were in charge. Mm. Uh, people who weren't always nice people, but were people who were true patriots and true businessmen. And they told the artists what films to make. And that's why the, the artists couldn't go out and push leftism because the people didn't want it. In the 60s, not only did the studio system fall apart, putting mm -hmm. the inmates in charge of the asylum so that the actors became the powerful people and, and the businessmen were kind of sidelined, but of course the, the culture fell apart. Mm. So the leftism entered that way and all the artists were pushing this new leftism, uh, this new, um, these new ideas that were coming in. It was really a, a bad moment uh, for our culture and for America, uh, a revolution that failed and yet nobody wants to let it go. And so that, that's what happened. It was over that time that the the principles of business for technical reasons as well the principles of business left hollywood and the principles of leftism entered in mm. and uh, it it really is a shame because the great movies um it's not that they weren't liberal in the best sense of the word, but they loved the country and they were liberal in the sense of let's include everybody, which I'm a, if that's what liberalism is, I'm a liberal. You know, yes, let's include everybody in this fabulous country. Mm -hmm. uh, but in order to be part of the fabulous country, you have to believe in the ideals of the fabulous country. And the businessmen who started Hollywood did believe in them. The artists who are working there now, many of them don't. And many of them are ignorant of what they are. And that's that's a real shame. So uh, I think kind of a funny example of how Hollywood doesn't get that conservatives watch their things is HBO being really perturbed at Donald Trump for using a couple of, creating a couple of Game of Thrones yes. memes. Yeah. 
And it just dawned on me, like, I mean, there's trademark violations and I want artists' work to be protected and all this stuff, right? But it's but it's like out of all of the memes out there, why do they just go after the President Trump? And do they not realize that Trump voters like watch their shows? I know. I know. And their they, movies. They they just, and their plays and their they, music and they, their fashion. They hate us. <laughs> and it's and and we do keep coming back because yeah. they're talented and we want their stories. But it's it's ridiculous for them to despise their own audience. And it's a, it's it's really shameful to despise your audience. I mean, mm. listen, I I'm I I'm happy if if leftists read my books. I'm not writing books for right wingers, I'm writing books for people, you know, and I think uh, to despise your audience is a terrible thing. Is a terrible way to live. Too. Yeah. yeah. How unjoyful. Yeah. All right. Robert says, "Do you prefer cats or dogs?" <laughs> I, I got. This is a good question. Yeah. Do you have any pets? I I had a dog. My dog died a couple mm. of years ago, and uh, you know we don't really want to get a new one because we want to be free to travel and everything like that. I love dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had cats for years. I knew I liked him. I mean, I'm not saying anything against cat people, but I, I I had cats for years, and I never really quite. Loved them. I liked them. They were mm-hmm. fine. They, I had a cat. Uh, I had a cat who used to sit and watch me write. When back in the day before computers, when I'd write with a pen, and uh, she would sit and watch me for. I worked for four hours every day, and on the fourth hour, she would sit, just sit there, watch me. Right anyway, the fourth hour, she'd just take my pen away. <laughs> it's like so, she was your yeah. little timer. Yeah, it was really, it was really nice. Uh, so I, I liked that cat very much. But dogs. God should have stopped with dogs. The dogs, <laughs> dogs are like the gospel alive. You know, they just all they want to do is love you. They they give you the love to you no matter what. When you're down, they give you love. When you're they're happy, they're happy for you. They're perfect animals. And uh, if they could play the piano, they'd be perfect. They're all right, the they could play the piano, they'd be perfect. And knock the pen out of your hand when the time is <laughs> yeah. up. Say, go get a drink and take a break, Drew. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Leah says, Dear Andrew, do you read science fiction? And if so, do you have any books or author recommendations? You know, it's funny. All my life, I thought I didn't like science fiction, and uh-huh. I thought I'd never read it. Uh-huh. So finally, I thought, well, I ought to read some science fiction. <clears throat> and um, You realized you'd read a whole I bunch, read, and I, you I'd never read, realized I'd it? I'd read it all. Yeah, I'd read <laughs> a lot. A lot of the, you know, I, I really, the thing I don't like about science mm-hmm. fiction is they don't do characters well. They do big ideas. Mm-hmm. So you read Philip K. Dick, who's a very, very interesting writer. Um, but his characters aren't really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I do like his short stories. I do like uh, Do Androids uh, Dream of Electric Sleep, which mm-hmm. became Blade Runner. Uh, and a lot of his stories are just really, really interesting. Um, I like Ray Bradbury when he's good, especially his short stories. Um, I think short stories are a really good venue for this. And I like... Um, you know, I'm not a big fan. I love the movies of Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. but I, I found the books a little tiring. Uh, but I, but I love The Hobbit. I thought The Hobbit was great. Really? I don't know if that counts as fantasy. I, I mean, uh, so I think uh, it's fantasy, but not sci-fi. And there's another book that is everything I dislike. It's all ideas and no characters. Okay. But it's the ideas are so interesting that it really grabbed me. And that's Childhood's End. And I can't. The name of the author goes out of my head, but uh, Childhood's End uh, is. I saw the the um, TV movie on Sci-Fi Channel and read the book, and I think that's a really, really fascinating book. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, good thing we have Google and Amazon. Yes, I'm sure. It's, where he's a famous could, writer. Where people could buy your he's, book on it's Amazon. Arthur C. Clarke, I think. All right. Yeah. They could buy it on Amazon, but why would they when they can get a signed copy over oh. at PremierCollectibles.com/slash/AnotherKingdom? <laughs> yes. We have ten minutes left. All right. Let's try to roll through as many questions and okay. signed copies as we can. Samuel asks, what are some of the challenges you've encountered in writing screenplays compared to novels? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, screenplays are almost all um, a structure. It's like building the framework of a house mm. instead of building the house itself. Um, and so you've got, you've got a couple of problems. One is very little of what you write 
is going to be on the screen. So everything has to be incredibly condensed. <clears throat> you can't write long conversations unless you're writing that kind of boring movie. And I write action, you know, uh, genre story. So you just, you just have to be incredibly tight, incredibly condensed all the time. And the other thing is, and this is a, a shame, because movie stars are so powerful, mm -hmm. they're things they won't play. They won't mm -hmm. play certain kinds of flaws. They won't play certain kinds of weaknesses. Um, and, and sometimes characters don't make sense because they won't bring that weakness to the screen because mm. a movie star has to protect his name and his image. And so there's a little bit of dishonesty in writing screenplays, which is why I've never loved them the way I love writing books, because I'll make my characters really flawed. I'll give my characters true, difficult flaws that mm. human beings have. Not just, you know, the one they all love to play is alcoholism. Yeah, I drink too much, you know, because that's cool. That's like manly and hip. And But they don't want to play like, uh, I, I'm a sexual deviant. They don't want to play that. You know, they don't want to play like uh, sometimes uh, I'm I worry. Dad. Sometimes I'm cowardly. Yeah. Sometimes, I, you know, I'm not a good dad. You know, they don't want to play that stuff. And so um, that, that's a big problem because you want to appeal to a star to get your film make, made. But stars, in order to protect their image, uh, tend to be less honest uh, than a character in a book. Hmm. So I, I, that's why I love books. But uh, screenplays are fun. And, right. and, and collaboration is fun. All right. Yeah. So Stephen says, have you read Philip Kerr's Bernie Gunter series? If so, what did you think of it? You know, it's funny. I knew Philip before he died. I knew, I knew him in England, mm. and I've never read one of his books. And I'm embarrassed by that. <clears throat> I hear he's really good, really interesting. Um, and uh, and he, he died very young, tragically. Mm. Um, but uh, but I just haven't read him, so I can't I can't talk about him. Okay. Uh, but but I was I, because because he died, he got a lot of his last book just came out, and um, posthumously. And it's gotten a lot of play, and I was reading. It, I thought, "Wow, that really sounds interesting." I'm sorry I haven't caught up with them, so I will. All right, Justin says, "Sage of the multiverse." I often hear Christians, after achieving some great event or moment in their lives, say something like, "God did this. <clears throat> I couldn't have done this without God." I know the argument goes something like, "God gave me the ability to perform," or "God is responsible for my success somehow." I think <clears throat> we can agree that even if you have God-given talent, you still have to work to achieve success. So my question is. If giving the credit to God in these situations is an act of humility or not, I think it's an act of honesty. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, God is not just the creator of life; He's the sustainer of life. If if you pull God out of the equation, everything just starts to decay. So all things decay, and we're mortal. Uh, matter is the is the language of the spirit. Matter is the way the spirit speaks, and matter dissolves and decays. But it's infused with life, and as long as it's infused with life, it's infused with God's spirit. And if you've ever succeeded at anything, if you've ever achieved anything, you know how little you had to do with it. Because <clears throat> we talked before about some books I've wrote that I think are really great, like mm -hmm. Werewolf Cop, that, that didn't make it, you know? Whenever something good happens, you know that God had a hand in it. He said, you know, no, no, this is a time when this is going to go well. So I just think it's honesty. Uh, and I think that, you know, People who are honest, when they achieve success, they don't become, a lot of people become uh, egotistical, mm -hmm. especially for the first year. But after that year, if you, don't, if you don't stop back and say, you know what, so much of this was luck. So many people do good work that doesn't get recognized. Uh, many great, great artists have died mm -hmm. without selling a single book or a single painting. Um, the good things that happen to you in your life uh, from writing a good book, to having that good book recognized, uh, all have to do with God. Just about everything has to do with God. So saying thank you, uh, acknowledging, 
uh, your debt, I think, is just a way to remember uh, that we're hostages to the will of uh, to the will of God. And uh, I think that um, when we there's an old expression. I think the Greeks. It comes from the Greeks mm-hmm. that um, a hero is led by fate. Everyone else is dragged by it. And I think that um, uh, that works with God too. Sometimes a hero is led by God, and everybody else is dragged by it. The only thing is that God will let you walk away. Mm-hmm. He will let you say no. And it's only when you um, agree to God's life that you get the life God meant for you. And so I think that thanking God is just realism, and I, it doesn't have to. You might not be humble. It might not be humble. It's just honesty. All right. Amy says, Dear Andrew, can you offer any guidance for someone who is new to Christianity and reading the Bible for the first time? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, one one thing is I love the King James edition. Mm. I love the King James. I love the language of it. I love the way it uh, has spoken through history. But you want to read a Bible that you can understand. You know, you want to read a Bible that has simple language mm-hmm. in it that, that makes sense to you so you get the story. There's even an old book by Pearl S. Buck, a very fine writer, who wrote a book called The Story Bible, where she just rewrites the stories and tells you the stories of the Bible. So don't be afraid, you know, don't be afraid to find the Bible that you understand, that speaks to you. Don't be afraid to, to read commentary that tells you what it means. A lot of commentary is a little too pushy for me. It tells me what I should think, mm-hmm. but, but commentary, you know, my, my beloved son, Spencer, has a thing called the Isaiah Project, which you can find at his uh, website, rejoice-evermore. And uh, he, he explains, he has a thing where you pass the, the cursor over a word, and it tells you what Isaiah is talking about when he mm-hmm. talks about the city of Tyre, or, or the, it tells you what it means. And so don't be afraid to look for commentary like that, that will help you to understand the Bible, what the people in the moment we're talking about. What did Jesus mean when he said such and such? What would that have meant to the people listening to him? I think that just, it, it, that doesn't make you shallow. It actually helps you to get more uh, into the depth of the Bible. And also don't forget to pray for uh, understanding and for guidance and, and just for a relationship with God that the Bible will speak into. I gotta say, had this been a boy and not another girl, although she hasn't identified yet, so I'm so heteronormative. <laughs> she gets a choice, I know. Um, Spencer was on my short list. It's a good name. Because we have lots of S names in our family, so we kind of want to keep that up. <laughs> All right, James says, were there any books or authors that helped to inspire you when you were writing Another Kingdom? Great, great question. I read, I went back, when I was a kid, um, I, I discovered the King Arthur stories. Mm-hmm. And so I went back and read not just King Arthur, but many of the great... Um, chivalric poems, uh, like The Fall of Jerusalem and Orlando Furioso, uh, some of which I had read, some of which I hadn't. I went back and reread, as I told you, Don Quixote, Mm -hmm. because I wanted to read uh, a modernist version of of the night stories uh, and and how they were silly and and how they weren't silly and what what it meant to believe in chivalry in a world that doesn't have much chivalry in it. I also went back to some of my favorite old detective stories, because Mm -hmm. it's not just a fantasy story. It's also a very real thriller. And so I started to reread and, and read new thrillers uh, to kind of repolish my skills as, as a suspense writer. Um, and, uh, and, and I also went back and read some of the religious stories um, that, I, that worked into the fantasy world, mm-hmm. like C.S. Lewis uh, and Tolkien. And so, uh, so I read a lot a lot of stuff just to remind myself. Just to write this doing. little old book. Just to write this little <laughs> old book, yeah. And, uh, and I'm just now uh, finishing the, the course of books that I wanted to read for the whole trilogy and writing the last book in the trilogy. Okay. Yeah. And when do you think that you'll be like last period, last page? I hope, of... I hope to get it done by the end of the summer. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we can record it in the fall. 
That'll be really exciting. Yeah. Sarah says, hi, Drew. Can you name the last book that brought you to tears of sadness, not tears of joy? She's very specific here. Uh, Love a good question from a yeah. good gal. Like, we're very detailed, yeah. especially about emotional <laughs> aspects. She says, what about the last book that caused you to laugh until you cried? You know, <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you the, the last book because I just can't remember things uh -huh. like, like that. Let me yeah. tell you the books that made me cry and laugh the most. Uh, a Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway mm -hmm. quite literally broke my heart. I have had my heart broken in real life. That's what it felt like when I read A Farewell to Arms. I was so in love. I don't want to give anything away, but I was just just loved the story. I believe that that was the late Senator John McCain's favorite book Was it well. really? Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and, uh, and the books that make me laugh more than anything are the Jeeves books by uh, P.G. Woodhouse. Um, there's, I think, like seven of them. When I read those books, and I read them in a period of struggle, hmm. so it was hard to make me laugh, I would sit up at night and read them, and I laughed so hard that one day my wife woke up and hit me with a pillow to get me to shut up because I was waking her up because I was just in stitches. I couldn't stop laughing. If you haven't read the Jeeves books, one of the ways I know if I'm going to like somebody, mm -hmm. if I walk into his house or her house and there's Jeeves on the bookshelf, I know that we have something in common. Same sense of humor. Same sense of humor. That P.G. Woodhouse, it was just, just the funniest books I've ever read. All right, last question comes from Tina. She wants to know, how do you stay so handsome? It's a great question, Tina. I know everybody <laughs> asks me that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I do work out constantly, and it does help me feel good, you know? Yeah. And I think uh, that's that's one thing. And, of course, you know, I mean, you know, Alicia, how crazy I am about my wife. And I think when you're crazy about your wife, it keeps you young, you know? <laughs> and so, and you got to look good for her. And you got to look good for her. So, you know, that's that's how I stay beautiful. And i got to say, I think the beard helps. Everyone yeah, I know. knows you love I'm the team beard. beard. You love the my beard. My husband is like a real-life Viking, so I'm a fan of the beard. I'm working overtime to keep it soft for my wife because uh, right. she complains about it. We're going to run over to do backstage. Yes. Okay. So, and you're going to maybe spend Easter weekend signing That's some more books. Sign some more books. Yeah. So if you want to get a signed copy of Drew's book, new book, Another Kingdom, it's the first in the trilogy. Season one, Another Kingdom, with you and Michael, is available at Daily Wire. Yep. I don't, I don't think season one is anymore, but season two is. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, well. You see, this is season one. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. Yeah. So, go over to premiercollectibles.com slash Another Kingdom to get a signed copy of Another Kingdom, signed by our very own Andrew Clavin, who, by the way, your signature or your autograph was so consistent. You had a really cool, like, A and yeah. a really cool K going. Uh, I've had a lot of practice. I, I need to <laughs> practice my signature because it's not as cool as yours and Ben's. But go over to premiercollectibles.com slash another kingdom. Don't forget, tune into Backstage because we're going to run over there right now. The guys are going to be all Mueller, all fake news breakdown, <laughs> all mainstream media freakouts, all celebrity responses. There's we got it tons, all. We got it all. There's just a little bit to talk about tonight. Yeah. Uh, so be sure to tune in for that and tune in next month if you absolutely have to. <laughs> I mean, I'll be here, but also I'll be asking Michael Knowles the questions. We're going to set up a special thing where you can actually squirt him through the camera with your, your super squirt. Lavender oil yeah, exactly. and something else? I don't know what it was. Don't be ruined lavender for me, you crazy college leftists. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for buying Drew's books. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.